All right. <clears throat> if you want to make your way back to your seat, <clears throat> take out a copy of God's Word. And turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. <clears throat> We've been in a series called Who is Jesus? Looking at the first four chapters of the book of Matthew. And this week we come to the baptism of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3. Let me read God's word for us, then we'll pray and we'll dive right in. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for right now, for it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. God, we open your word expecting to hear from you. We too want to receive your Holy Spirit so that we might know you as Father. We love you and we're glad you love us. Speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, <clears throat> amen. The baptism of Jesus. Here I think is the main idea that we're gonna see this morning. Jesus has come to share the love of the Father. Jesus has come to share the love of the Father. We're gonna see this in two major movements this morning. The first one I'd like to take us to is that Jesus takes our place. Jesus takes our place. Now you may say, where in the world do you see our place in this passage? What do you mean Jesus takes our place? So let's walk through this idea for just a second together. We know from earlier in chapter three that John was baptizing and he said his baptism was uh, in verse 11 with water for repentance. He was trying to get people to change their lives, repent. Repent of what? <clears throat> the wrongdoing of sin. Repent from sin and turn to God. John was upfront about that purpose for his baptism, but now Jesus shows up to be baptized and John stops him. And he stops him kind of rightfully so. He's like, I, I need your baptism. Why are you here to be baptized? Jesus doesn't need the baptism of John. So what's he doing? Jesus does not have anything to repent for. Yet Jesus shows up to John's baptism and says, hey, I'm, I'm next. Like, I'm, I'm climbing down in the water next to be baptized. And John rightfully says, I know who you are, <laughs> right? First of all, there's a relationship there. Uh, and, and they're in the same family, like cousins or something. And, and so he, he would have known who Jesus was. And, and he says, you don't need this kind of baptism. You don't need to repent because you have no wrongdoing. And then Jesus actually says, look, this is gonna fulfill all righteousness. What sort of righteousness needs to be fulfilled? What righteousness is fulfilled by Jesus' baptism? Well, we know from the Old Testament that the Messiah who would come would be the sin bearer. We know that the Messiah who would come would be humble. And so it's fitting for this humble sin bearer to identify with sinners. It's fitting for our Savior, Jesus, who needs no repentance, needs no confession, needs no forgiveness, it's fitting for him to identify with those who do. 
this baptism is in one way a massive act of humility. And by willingly being counted among the sinful, Jesus is in effect taking their place. Jesus takes our place just like that. Do you realize what, <clears throat> what would have happened for all those, and it was clearly enough of a crowd for the Pharisees and Sadducees to go see what was happening. Do, do you understand that every person that went into the water was by that act confessing, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I've not been walking in the ways of God and I want to turn my life in a way that's ready to receive who God is. So every person that went down, there probably would have been a celebration if you were a follower of John. There probably would have been some good moment like, hey, I'm glad you're doing this. But there was also this subliminal uh, confession by doing that of saying like, I need to repent. So Jesus then climbs into the water. So what does everyone think who's watching? Ah, oh, this nice man, this nice man uh, must need to repent. This nice man must have some sin in his life. Th this this man here who's traveled all the way from Galilee has come all the way here because he's so desperate to turn his life around. But Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows that he doesn't have any sin. But do you realize he does not defend himself when he gets into the water? He doesn't stand up to everyone and say, look, hey, I'm about to get in, but I need you all to know I don't need this. Like, I'm perfect, so don't get this twisted when I climb in here. I'm not climbing in here to repent. I'm climbing in here to fulfill righteousness. Jesus, like Isaiah 53 says, is silent like a lamb being led to the slaughter. He doesn't even speak up to defend himself while he's being counted among the sinful. And he's being counted among the sinful. Uh, if anyone looked at him and supposed he had sin, they would have been wrong. Jesus was totally willing for people to watch him walk into those waters and think that he was a sinner because he knew he needed to be counted among the sinful and carry that burden, carry their shame, carry their punishment if he was ever gonna bring the salvation for sin that he came to bring. He doesn't defend himself when he could have. And if you know the story of Jesus, you know this is not the last time he's counted among the sinful. Throughout the gospels, the accusations thrown at him that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. Right, he's a glutton and a drunkard. But then the way his life ends, he's also counted among the sinful. As he hangs on the cross, totally innocent not deserving to die at all, much less for the charges brought against him. Hanging between two known immoral men counted among the sinful. And what does he do as the accusations are being thrown at him? That's what you say. Why don't you speak up and defend yourself? No, because Isaiah 53, like a lamb that's being led to the slaughter, he's silent. He's not gonna speak up and defend himself because he knows what has to happen. That's the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows he needs to suffer and die to bring salvation. So for us, if we believe part of what Jesus is doing in this baptism is he's taking our place, taking our place of shame, bearing our sin, bearing our iniquity, I wanna ask you, what kind of sin in your own life, can you not imagine Jesus associating with?
And what's the part of you that you feel like you have to keep hidden from Christ because you think he doesn't, he doesn't want to know that? He doesn't want to carry that? I know he forgives, but goodness, I've got to do everything I can to kind of keep that away from, I've got to keep the bad away from Jesus because he doesn't want that. What, what part of your own life are you imagining that Jesus doesn't want to associate with? Could you receive the, the truth this morning, the freeing truth that Jesus carries all of your sin and your shame? There is no part of your heart that he does not know. There is no, nothing you can bring to him that will surprise him. Nothing can surprise him. So you can't bring to him in confession some piece that he's gonna go, ah, I need to think about that for a moment. Carrie and I are way behind the times. Last night, we started watching The Father of the Bride with Steve Martin, and that came out one year before we were born in 1991, and uh, <clears throat> we totally missed, <laughs> we totally missed watching that, and we're trying to find something that's like, hey, we've, have you seen that? No, all right, let's watch it. And I'm picturing, talking about being surprised, I'm picturing his face at the dinner table when she's talking about the great time she had in Italy. Oh, you and mom would love to go, and I met this, this man there. And he kind of looks with interest. <laughs> and you see his expression change more and more the more she describes like, we spent all this time together and oh, we're in love. And at that point, he's already like, okay, uh, no. And then she goes a step further and says, and we're gonna get married. <laughs> and you just see his face like, this is not the dinner I wanted to have. Uh, the day you get back from months away from us. And he is shocked. Now, he loves his daughter, but he is shocked. And he is not happy, and he kind of pitches a fit, and it's funny to, to watch his reactions to all of this. But, but as I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking about this text, and that Jesus carries everything for us. There is nothing that you can sit across the table for him and tell him the deepest and darkest parts of your life, the most shameful things, maybe not even that you did, but that happened to you, there's nothing you can tell him that not only he doesn't know, but that he didn't carry for you. It doesn't just say he sympathizes with you, like I feel sorry for how hard that must be. Scripture uses the phrase in Isaiah 53, he carries our iniquity. He bears the marks of our suffering and our shame and our sin. So the parts of you that you want to keep most hidden, maybe from your own self or from others or from Jesus, Jesus not only knows, but he carries it. What are you concerned with defending about yourself? What parts of yourself are you constantly trying to justify? The reality is, Jesus, in his baptism, stood in the waters of repentance defenseless not defending his own perfection and his own purity, so that we could stand as sinners with a sure and eternal defense forever. Part of what we see in the baptism of Jesus is that he takes our place. But that's not the whole story, because this little narrative about his baptism goes on. And it tells us what happens immediately when he was baptized and he comes up from the water. The next movement that we're gonna look at is Jesus takes our place so that we can take Jesus' place. 
He takes our place so we can take his place. What happens when he's baptized? Two things. One, the spirit comes down on him in the form of a dove. We could go back and see how the Old Testament said this about the Messiah. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61. Some people call Isaiah the fifth gospel because it's so quoted in the gospel writers. So if you're having trouble reading the Old Testament, go maybe start in Isaiah and you'll see a lot of themes that get fulfilled in the New Testament. But they knew that when the Messiah came, he was gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's important to say though, that the Spirit does not make Jesus something he was not already. It's not that Jesus was a normal man and at his baptism he became the Son of God. It's very important that we, that we know that. Instead, the Spirit equips and commissions Jesus to do the task and mission that he came for. So this is not God saying, look, formerly you were just good old Jesus of Nazareth, but now you're God. I'm gonna make you God. No, 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 that's not what's happening. He is God in the flesh. He is fully and truly God, and he is fully and truly man, but what's happening here is a public uh, attesting that he is God, and hey, here's the Spirit coming down. Doesn't this remind you of the Old Testament hearers and readers that the Messiah would have this happen to him? So the Spirit comes down on him, and the second thing that happens is that he hears the Father's voice, also reminiscent of Isaiah 42, verse one. And the Father's voice says that this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Can you picture with me the significance of that? Up through Matthew chapter three, verse 17, where God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well, well pleased. I'll ask a rhetorical question, you don't have to answer. What has Jesus done? Nothing. He's been born, <laughs> and he's grown up. We have no narrative of his miracles, no narrative of healing, no narrative of feeding people, no narrative of proclaiming the kingdom. We have no narrative of Jesus doing any of the ministry that we know we're gonna read about over the next 24 chapters, but none of that's happened yet. It's so important to understand the order in which God's love comes. God declares his love for Jesus before Jesus does any of the works that he came to do. Did you hear that this morning? Jesus is not on some sort of mission to receive love from the Father. Jesus already has the love of the Father before he does any of his mission. And in part, we've got to talk for a second about the Trinity. I joked with Neil walking in this morning. I said, look, if you've ever wondered about the Trinity, it's going to all get figured out this morning. And you won't have any more questions when you leave. And maybe you're like, I don't get the joke. The joke is the Trinity can be really tough to wrap our minds around because we are Trinitarian Christians. Like we believe, almost 2,000 years of church history, Christians have been Trinitarian. Go back and read the Apostles' Creed. Lynn read it a number of weeks ago. Or the Nicene Creed or any of the early creeds of the church, what they were trying to affirm was that we believe in one God, not multiple gods, one God. But this one God is in three persons. Mind blown. (laughs) Right off the bat. We believe the one God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're not distinguished in their character. They share the same character. They're not distinguished in their hierarchy. 
Now, we do see Jesus at times say, I'm submitting to the will of the Father. That does not mean he eternally submits to the will of the Father. What that means is in his personhood, he is submitting as a human being to the will of the eternal God for what Jesus was called to do, which was come to earth, live, and die. So we have one God, Father, Son, Spirit, equal in authority, equal in glory, equal in all of their attributes, equal in their character, And the best way I could describe it, I I can't get much better than Michael Reeves wrote a little book called Delighting in the Trinity. And if you go, I need something short to help me understand this, it is readable, it is short, and it is rich. Pick that book up. Michael Reeves answers the question about the Trinity by asking it like this, what were they doing before creation? What's going on? And he answers it like this, The Father has always been loving the Son. And the Son has always been loving the Father. And they have been in loving union forever. And that loving union between them is the one spirit that's being communicated back and forth. The Father gives everything. Like you might have a child and say, well, he's the spitting image of you. Well, literally he's not. Right, because there's two parents that come together to create a child that's honestly a little bit of both. But, but what happens is the father communicates all of his glory to the son, and the son perfectly, there's not two parents making, there is one son reflecting in perfect glory his father's glory. And they are delighting in each other, and they are loving each other for all eternity. And the spirit is being communicated back and forth between them like, I love you. And there's this perfect unity here. And what we see on earth is when Jesus comes, the father says, I love this son. Not because he's done something for me or he's earned his way into being God. This is my eternal son whom I have always loved. This is what we mean when we say Trinity. The father has always loved the son. The son has always loved the father and perfectly reflected the father's glory back to him and the spirits communicated that love back and forth between them. This is one God in three persons. Now, Jesus has come that we might share in that eternal love. We don't get a different God. This is salvation. This is the gospel. Who is God? God is love. In the Trinity, he's not a single person God. He's a three person God who's always loved. He didn't need us because he had this buildup of love with nowhere to put it. He actually had such a fulfilling relationship of love that it overflowed into creation because he wanted to share it with us. Here's Michael Reeves. The father sent his son to make himself known meaning not that he wanted to just download some information about himself, but that the love that the Father eternally had for the Son might be in those who believe in him. That we might enjoy the Son as the Father has always enjoyed the Son. Here then is a salvation that no single person God could ever offer, even if they wanted to. The Father so delights in his eternal love for the Son that he desires to share it with all who will believe. Ultimately, the father sent the son because the father so loved the son and he wanted to share that love and fellowship. His love for the world is the overflow of his almighty love for his son. That is the God we love and we serve. The God who has always loved 
for eternity past and always will love in eternity future. And by the Son, he is inviting us to come in to that loving relationship. So that Jesus in his baptism receives the Spirit and hears the Father's voice saying, this is my beloved. So now, in Christ, both of those apply to us. We receive the Spirit, which Romans 8 and Galatians 4 tell us is the Spirit of adoption that testifies deep in our souls that we're children of God by whom we, so, so then by that same Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. This is what salvation is. Jesus took our place so that we could take his place and be united to God, be adopted into his family, and be recipients of his love. The elders have been in a process since late spring, early summer of discerning, God, what's your unique purpose for our church? And we've, we've kind of said a statement, and we've woven it in at different points, but our unique purpose as a church is we want to be a church community where people experience God's love in ways that free us to love God and love others. You say, where do you get that? In part, right here in this passage. Jesus is coming to take our place, be counted among the sinful, so that we could take his place and be loved by God. So, in some ways, the message is very simple this morning. When we see Jesus and we see him doing this, this is not just some abstract uh, historical event that we gotta figure out what does it mean theologically over there. Because when you come to know Jesus, you begin to share in his inheritance. You begin to share in his glory. You share in his love. You share in all that's now true of Jesus becomes true of us. We receive the love of the Father. So in that way, the message this morning is God loves you. You say, boy, that's simple. You really went complex to get down to that bottom line there. Well, there's a reason I'm teaching in here and not back in the kids' class. But it really does come back to something that simple. God loves you. And the way you put yourself in the way of God's love is you find yourself in Christ. The avenue of God's love is in and through Jesus by the Spirit you will not experience God's love outside of that. You will only experience God's love in Christ through the Spirit. But the good news this morning is that God does love you and invites you to come and find yourself in Jesus. And so, today is an effort to remind you of a simple truth I'm sure and I hope you've heard. God loves you. He loves you before you do anything. He loves you after you do the wrong thing. He loves you in your weakness. He loves you in your sin. He loves you in your shame and in your suffering. God loves you and invites you to himself so that you could experience the freedom of having someone who's perfect carry all the weight and burdens that you can't. And that's why every week we celebrate the Lord's Supper because he carried in his broken body and shed blood what we couldn't carry. 
and we get to drink it in every day. And so on that note, I'd like to invite us just to pray for a minute. And then we're going to approach the Lord's table together. I'd like to invite you to consider the areas of your life that you think are most unlovable. It may be hard for you to bring up because you've tried so hard to forget what they are. But if you can think of what that is, I'd invite you in the form of a prayer to acknowledge to God that Jesus has taken your place in carrying that for you. And Jesus has paid for that on your behalf. God, we are thankful that you love us. We're thankful that Jesus would humble himself. I mean, what a humble savior we serve and how refreshing is that, that we don't serve someone that constantly feels like the bar is being raised just above where we are and all we ever get is, a, is an inspiring speech and a challenge to do better and let's get excited about this and let's go for more, but instead we get a humble savior that's come to, to seek us and to serve us and to die for us and to actually give us all of his riches instead of just demanding more from us. Thank you for being that kind of savior, Jesus. I pray that today we would experience the love that you've shown and offered. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your name we're able to pray.